today's passage, our scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Therefore, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. So let me play Captain Obvious here for a second and say our world is deeply divided, painfully divided. This has always been true since the fall of humanity into sin, but there are ways in which our culture feels this in some particularly acute ways. I mean, social media and the 24-hour news cycle are constantly bombarding us with messages of conflict and division. There is a, a particular intensity and zealousness with which we fight. I mean, we, we believe now that if I don't call out and challenge and fight against people who see things differently than me, then it's the same thing as agreeing with them. And then we also, we run into this problem where we don't know the difference between what is truly wrong and should be confronted and where there is just places for honest disagreement. We fight about everything with the same amount of intensity. And then the way we fight, rather than being careful and precise oh man, we go scorched earth. Someone does something that I don't like, let's just burn down their life. Let's, let's uh, cancel them. Let's just wreck and ruin them. We, we are deeply divided, painfully divided as a culture. And any talk of unity, any talk of patience, gentleness, gets met with deaf ears at best and even seen as dangerous in our society. And sadly, this has infected the church in some ways. And look, I don't know if it's, if the evangelical church in the past few years has just felt like it's been compromising for so long that it's like swinging the pendulum to the extreme side the other way, we've got to fight about everything, or if we've just been in, uh, influenced by the culture, it's probably a little bit of both, but man, in the church, even when you talk about things like unity and gentleness and patience, people look at you like you're a compromiser, like, like you're just trying to capitulate to the culture. And yet here we have these verses in Ephesians that say, with all humility and patience and gentleness, bear with one another, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, in a culture like ours, what do we do with these verses? How do we live these verses out? Dare we live these verses out when everyone is screaming at us, this is wrong and harmful? Well, we're in the second week of our One Another series, and we're looking at five different passages that speak of how the church is called to live among one another in the church, how we are to love one another and treat one another in the church. Last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, which, where we saw that none of us can endure in our faith alone. And so we are called to consider one another. We are called to provoke one another to love and good deeds. We are not to neglect meeting together. We are to encourage one another and all of that. So we help each other endure in our faith. And this week, our focus is going to be on unity and bearing with one another. And just as we saw last week, the one another's 
They're not just these nice sayings that we're called to follow. Underneath them is profound truth. We're not called to unity just for unity's sake. We're called to unity for something much, much bigger. And it's when we grab onto that truth, when we hold to that truth, that we will be able to walk in unity and bear with one another in a culture that is so divided. And so here's the title of my message this morning is this, Unity's Purpose. And the main point that I want us to grab hold of this morning is this, that our unity declares the glory of Christ and the power of the gospel. Our unity declares the glory of Christ and the power of the gospel. Now, Ephesians 4 begins with this exhortation from the Apostle Paul to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling you have received. He urges them to walk in a manner of the call, worthy of the calling they have received. Have you ever urged somebody to do something? Like, pled with them, asked them, with all in your being, you're trying to get them to do something. Like, one year on vacation, Mindy and I made that mistake of uh, signing up for free tickets as long as you go listen to one of those uh, timeshare spiels. You guys ever made that mistake? <laughs> well, the, the lady that was trying to sell us this timeshare, oh, she was pleading with us. She was urging. Like at one point, she was like crying and saying that our marriage was going to be saved or our marriage would fall apart if we didn't get this timeshare and go on vacation every year. I mean, she was throwing everything at us. And it was silly. But man, you had to admire how she was just earnest and she was urging us to do this thing. Like that's the level the Apostle Paul is talking here. He's not going, hey, if you get around to it, if you have time, if you think about it, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have. No, he's urging them. He's saying, this is everything. This is life. With all, every fiber in his being, he's urging them towards this. And just as the Apostle Paul urged the Ephesian church, God's word urges us, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. And so, we have to ask the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received? But before we can answer that question, we have to answer the question, what's our calling? If we're going to walk in a manner worthy of something, we need to know what that thing is, right? And so the Apostle Paul lays out in the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians the calling that we have received, in particular in Christ, and so he begins in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. The first thing you need to understand about our calling is that it is God blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. At its heart, our calling is a blessing. Then he writes, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Our calling is that we would be holy and blameless before God, not because of anything we have done, but because of Christ. He has predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Our calling is to be the adopted children of God, beloved by our Father, a Father who lavishes grace, not drips a little bit on, not sprinkles a little bit. He's not stingy, lavish, abundance upon abundance of his grace. In him, 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Our calling is to be redeemed, bought back from sin and death, forgiven of all our sins through the blood of Jesus. And again, as Paul says, which is God richly pouring out his grace. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. Our calling is to know the gospel. Like, look, there are things about God's will we don't know that he he hasn't revealed to us, particularities, things that we can't understand, God hasn't told us, but the central thing of his will the central plan and purpose that he has for all things, he's revealed to us to unite all things under Christ. Our calling is to know God's will and purpose in Christ. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Our calling is to have an inheritance to live in the riches of eternal life, to know the riches of a new heaven and a new earth that will one day be ours. In him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believe, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Our calling is to receive the Holy Spirit whom Jesus poured out on his people, whom we receive when we put our faith in Christ, the spirit who renews us and transforms us, the spirit who is a down payment on our inheritance. Like when you make a down payment on something, when you put money down on something, what are you saying? You're promising that more is coming. How do we know that more is coming for us and inheritance is coming for us? What's God's promise? He gave us the spirits. That's God's promise to us. Paul goes on to talk about this calling in chapter two as well. He writes in verse uh, four, four through six, God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. He also raised us up and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Like our calling is to be made alive with Christ. At one time, we were dead in our sins, We were given over to every evil and wickedness. We were in rebellion against God, deserving of God's righteous judgments. But God, because he is rich in mercy and great in love, he made us alive in Christ. He breathed new spiritual life into us so that we would turn from our sin and turn to him and his glory. He also raised us up and seated us with Christ. Like our calling is to be raised to new life. Just as Jesus was raised to new life, we have been raised to new life. Jesus' resurrection power is our resurrection power. His life is our life. We are victorious over sin and evil and death because he is victorious. That's our calling, church. And then he goes on in verse 10. For we are his, meaning God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of of time for us to do. Our calling is to be God's workmanship, for God to renew and transform us, to empower us to walk in good works that he has given us. And then finally, in verses 13 and 14 and 16, Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. 
He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Our calling is not just to be reconciled to God, but to be reconciled to one another. Those who by nature would normally be divided and would fight, God has made one family, one people, united us together in him, reconciled us to him and to one another. And so what is the calling that we have received? Blessing. To, to, to be holy and blameless. To experience adoption and be children of God. Redemption. To know the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. An inheritance to receive the Holy Spirit, to be made alive in Christ, to be raised to new life with Christ, to be God's workmanship, renewed and transformed, to be united in Christ as one people. This is the calling that Paul is talking about. What an incredible calling. What an amazing calling that we have been given. In light of this calling, in light of all that you have been given in Christ, walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So, if this is our calling, what does it mean to walk in a manner that is worthy? Well, Ephesians 4 through 6 really spell this out for us in a very holistic way, a whole life way. But it starts with an emphasis on unity. Let's read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 again. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Paul urges them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, and the first thing he presses is unity. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirits. And then this, we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one, 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 unity, 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 unity. He's pressing unity over and over and over. And we ask the question, why? Like, why does he press unity? Why is unity so important? Well, on the one hand, it's practical, right? Like when, when you're unified, there's this great peace about being unified. Like, you know when your marriage or your relationship with your kids or relationships with other people, friends or family or at your job or in the church, like when there's not unity there, when there's discord, when there's conflict, man, that's hard. It's painful. It hurts. It's disruptive. It's destructive. Unity is life-giving. It's healthy. And so, so unity, there's benefit to unity. Also, when you're unified, you get a lot done, Right? Like when, when you share the same value and the same mission, when you're on the same page and you, you're agreeing upon what we're about and what we're going to accomplish, you can get a lot done. Much more than if everybody's kind of about their own agenda or fighting about what we should do. So unity, there's beautiful benefit to unity. But Paul isn't just talking about the beautiful benefit of unity. He's pressing much deeper. He, he's going much deeper. He's starting somewhere else. As, as great as the benefits of unity are, and they are great, where he starts is that our unity glorifies Christ and the power of the gospel. So in Ephesians 
uh, chapter one, verse 19, Paul has this incredible prayer. He prays that the eyes or the, the, the heart of the Ephesians would be open so they would understand the immeasurably greatness, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward them. Like God's power towards us is so great, so awesome, so unbelievable that we need the help of God to even understand it, to even grasp it. And so he prays that they would understand this power, but then he spells out what God's power towards us has accomplished. And this is what he writes in verses 20 and 23 of chapter one. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. God's immeasurably great power raised Christ from the dead, exalted Jesus above everything, subjected everything under Jesus, and made Jesus the head of God's people, the church. God has made Christ the center of everything. Everything, whether spiritual or physical, whether good or evil, all things find their identity and their purpose in relationship to Christ. And so our unity as a church is a declaration. It's a picture. It's a signpost that Christ is over all things. Like we are united in Christ under Christ because Christ is above all things. The whole emphasis on the one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism is to emphasize that God is over all and he has made Christ head over all things. And then the gospel that you and I believe and the gospel that you and I proclaim declares this, that Jesus Christ the crucified but now resurrected and reigning king is the king over all things. He has defeated every sin and every evil power and every authority and even death itself. And that he has redeemed and brought a people together for himself to live underneath his good kingship. That unity, that gospel, what does this declare? It declares that Jesus is king over all nations. It declares that Jesus and his salvation has gone to all people, that his salvation knows no limitation, that the sin and the pride and the things that would divide us stand no match for the power of the resurrected Christ and the calling that we have in him. Amen. And so the gospel that we declare, the gospel that we believe declares a king who is over all things and our unity underneath him declares that. It declares truly who he is. Our unity declares the glory of Christ and the power of the gospel. And so do you see why unity would be the tip of the spear here in Ephesians 4? Before Paul says anything else about the man, walking in a, man, a manner that is worthy of the calling, he starts with unity because unity, as much as anything, maybe more than anything, points to the glory of Christ and the power of the gospel. So, if unity is at the center of us walking in a manner worthy of our calling, how do we keep this unity? If our unity declares the glory of Christ and the power of the gospel, how do we exactly declare that glory of Christ and the power of the gospel through our unity? Well, as Ephesians 4, 2 through 3 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love. If we are to keep unity, friends, we must be humble people. Like, look, is it no wonder, is it no wonder that we are more divided than we've ever been in some ways? That the divisions that we experience in our culture are fought with such intensity and such passion and such vitriol. Is it no wonder that that has increased more and more as we as a culture have more and more given over to expressive individualism, which is the belief that self is king, that I define my identity, I define my purpose, I define my sexuality, I define what, how I'm going to live my life and what I'm going to do with my time, my money, and my resources. And if anybody gets in my way, they need to be removed. Like if we're that hell bent on enshrining self as king, it is no wonder that we fight the way we do. Because if anybody gets in our way, they have to be removed because they violate the almighty sacredness of self. But church, listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I think it's sometimes it's easy for us. Yeah, that's, that, that, those people over there, they do that. Look, I don't care if you are politically conservative, politically liberal, if you're alt-right, libertarian, neo-progressive. I, I don't care how you identify politically. I don't care how you view educating your kids or, or, or how you view mar marriage and uh, parenting. I don't care how you view uh, your sexuality. I don't care about how you view time and money and government. I, I don't care. What, whatever it is and however you identify, whatever, whatever you, however you view yourself, look, this problem of enshrining self as king, it's a problem we all have. We all have this problem. We're, we're all slave to this because apart from the grace of God, we're all slave to sin. Well, we're all given over to sin. And apart from the grace of Christ, we stand under the righteous judgment of God. So this is a problem that runs through the heart of all of us. But here's the good news of the gospel. Praise God, those of us who have received the calling that is in Christ, we've been forgiven of our sin and we've been set free from our sin and we've been empowered to walk in humility. And so now as the church we don't fight and divide. We don't enshrine and enthrone self. No, we walk in humility. We recognize we aren't king. Jesus is king. Jesus is the one who defines what is true and good and beautiful. Jesus is the one who defines my identity and my sexuality. Jesus is the one who defines my marriage and my parenting and my education. He's the one who defines how I use my money and my time and my resources. Jesus is king and we humble ourselves under his good kingship. And as we humble ourselves before him, we humble ourselves before one another. We put to death things that would divide us from one another. We put to death things like arrogance and pretension and self-righteousness. We recognize none of us are better than the other because we all need the grace of God where we stop trying to strive and fight for status in the church especially. We stop trying to make something of ourselves so that we can seem important. We stop pushing for our own agenda and just caring about our needs. Rather, we love, we serve, we sacrifice. We care about the lowly and the hurting and the broken and the discouraged we humble ourselves and we enter into their mess and we love them so that they don't separate from community, but we draw them in. Here's what else. We apologize when we don't follow through. We seek forgiveness when we've sinned against 
others and we offer forgiveness when they come and ask for it. And then also, we open ourselves up to teaching and correction and challenge. Being humble means I have not arrived and I will not arrive and I need my brothers and sisters to teach me, to challenge me and correct me. None of us, myself included, as a pastor, none of us are above correction and teaching. We all need it. And to walk in humility is to open ourselves up to it, not just, not begrudgingly, but willingly. And so let me ask, where do you need to grow in humility? Where do you need to submit your life first to the kingship of Jesus? Where do you need to drop the self-righteousness and pretension? Where do you need to stop seeking status, stop pushing for your agenda and your needs to be met, and start loving and serving and sacrificing for others? Where do you need to apologize? Where do you need to seek forgiveness? Who do you need to extend forgiveness to? Where do you need to open yourself up to correction from others? Listening to their teaching and their challenge. When they come to you and say, hey, can I make an observation? Can, can I just speak into something? And you're saying, yes, please, I need this. Church, what would it do in this community? How would we put the glory of Christ and the power of the gospel on display in our unity if we all walked in humility? In addition to humility, we also walk in gentleness. The Greek word for gentleness is also translated in other places as meekness. In Matthew 5, 5, where Jesus says, blessed are the meek, the Greek word for meek is the same word here uh, translated in Ephesians as gentleness. Keeping unity requires that we be gentle and meek people, which is the last thing in the world our culture, our culture does, right? We own people. We put them on blast. We dox them. We cancel them. We burn their life down. Like that's how we deal with conflicts. But in the church, as people who have received a calling in Christ, we're gentle. Now listen, this does not mean we're passive. This does not mean we're compromising. Gentleness is not weakness. It's not compromise. Gentleness is power under control. It is the wise and careful use of power. Like in our culture and its anger and its division, it's like a chainsaw. Gentleness is like a scalpel. Like we cut, we cut, but we're careful, we're wise, we're precise. Chainsaws cut to destroy, right? You ever use a chainsaw on something? You're just destroying it. Scalpels, they cut to heal. And so listen, friends, life in the church, community, being faithful to church community means we have to disciple and teach and challenge and correct one another. Sometimes we have to press on things and sometimes we have to come hard when people have, have allowed sin to harden their heart and they're in a place of pride. Sometimes we have to go hard. We have to press into that. But listen, we never go scorched earth on people. We're always practicing gentleness with one another. Because listen, when people go scorched earth, what are they doing? They're just trying to burn the thing down. You've made me mad. I just want to burn down your life. We're not those kind of people. As followers of Jesus, we believe in redemption, that the arc of history is towards redemption and restoration. So we don't go scorched earth. Also, when you go scorched earth, when you respond in anger and irritation, here's what you're saying. 
You have offended the almighty sacredness of me. And when you do that, what happens? You minimize the kingship of Jesus. And you break down unity. Friends, I know, listen, I know, people can be prideful. People can hurt you. People can do really dumb things that hurt. They can sin against you. I'm not denying that those things are, aren't real and aren't serious. People can mess with you in ways that, that, that it, it really causes pain. And at times we need to go at people. We need to confront them and challenge them. But listen, here's what we also need to recognize. That underneath so much of the anger and the division and the acting out that you're going to experience in the church, you're going to find a hurting person. The people are hurting they're worn out, they're beat up, they're carrying the pain of self-inflicted wounds and the wounds that others have inflicted on them. They're hurting and they're desperate for forgiveness, they're desperate for freedom, they're desperate for life and wholeness and healing. They're desperate for someone to be gentle with them. And praise God that our King, the glorious king of the universe, the king over all things, King Jesus. This is what he says about himself in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The words translated lowly and humble, same Greek words as humble and gentle. Jesus, the glorious king, the king over all things, the one who rules and reigns and will judge is also a humble and gentle king. Praise God Jesus didn't go scorched earth on us when we deserved it. But he was gentle with us. He was gentle with us. And because Jesus was gentle with us, we're gentle with others. Because Jesus, our king, is gentle and we live under his kingship, we are now gentle with others. We build unity by being gentle with others. We glorify our Savior. We glorify Christ and the power of the gospel by being gentle with others. And so where do you need to grow in gentleness? Where do you need to grow in responding to people's sin and failures and weakness with gentleness rather than blasting them with your anger and irritation? where you need to come in carefully and wisely confront and challenge, even when it's hard, even when you have to come strong. How can you grow? And listen, I know you could probably quickly identify ways that you need to do that in your marriage and in your parenting. Awesome, grow in those ways. But what about in the church? What about in gospel community? What about in the other people that you know in this church? How can you grow in gentleness? Now, here's the other thing about gentleness. To be gentle, you actually have to be in proximity to people so that they can sin against you and you can bring challenge. So if you're not experiencing people sinning against you and irritating you and frustrating you, if you're not close enough people to bring challenge, then you're not going to be able to be gentle. And so for some of us, maybe the first step is just to enter into relationship deep enough to have to be gentle. You cannot be faithful to this call if you're keeping people at arm's length. How can you grow in gentleness? What would it do, church? What would it do to this community? How would we glorify the Christ and the power of the gospel in our unity?
if we are gentle with one another. Final piece of this picture is patience, bearing with one another in love. Like, look, our world is anything but patient. (laughs) We want what we want, when we want it, and it's right now. Like, we want instant return on investments. We we want things to happen quickly. We want quick change. When, When people that are in our lives are irritating and frustrating and annoying. We don't, we're not patient with them. We just remove them. If, if there are things that are causing us discomfort, we don't endure them. We just get rid of them. We are impatient. But in contrast to our impatient world, friends, we have a patient God. Scripture says, who's slow to anger. When we are not faithful, God is faithful with us. Friends, when we were absolute train wrecks, God was patient with us. And because God was patient with us, we are called to be patient with one another. And the way that this patience is played out is by bearing with one another in love. This bearing with, this this is a rich, multifaceted term. Underneath it is patience, but it's an active patience. It's the kind of patience that allows you to enter into mess and sin and frustration and irritation and live with people, walk with people, not separate from relationship, but, but actually stay fully engaged. So, so here, this operates on a number of levels. For one, let me, let me just start here by saying this. If you are a part of First City Church, you will be sinned against. Sorry to disappoint you. Like, like, if you've been around First City long enough, you already know that. Cat's out of the bag. You've experienced that. You're like, yeah, I know that. If you haven't been around long enough for that to happen, I just want to be honest with you. Set your expectations. You're going to get sinned against, and you are going to sin against other people. We're all sinners. It's going to happen. Like, by God's grace, we hope it isn't, like, damaging and destructive sin, not, not dismissing and minimizing that. And, and at times, there, there will be lesser sins that are going to hurt. So I'm, I'm, I'm not minimizing that, but it's, just, it's going to happen. But bearing with one another is this commitment to say, even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of frustration and people's failures, even when I am hurt by other people, I am going to commit to staying in relationship. I'm not going to separate myself from relationship. I'm not going to allow sin to break down the unity that I have with other people. I'm going to push through I'm going to bear with the sins of other people. I know that's hard. I know that takes a lot of work sometimes. Some sins, you can, it's, it's easy, reconciliation's easy, happens right away, no big deal. Sometimes it takes time and it is hard and it is painful. But bearing with one another is this commitment to unity, this commitment to pushing through the sin and the pain that can happen. Here's the other thing. There are people here with theological beliefs, political beliefs, views about marriage and parenting, education, views about all kinds of things, vaccines, you name it. There are going to be people here that are different than you, see things differently than you, live differently than you. Some of those people can be very vocal about those differences. And here's what's going to happen. They're going to annoy you. They're going to annoy you. It's going to be irritating. It's going to be frustrating at times. Bearing with one another is saying, I am not going to allow those differences to drive a wedge in my relationship. That my unity in Christ is stronger than that. And even to a lesser degree, like friends, there are things that we do that are quirky. 
Like, do you know? Do you know? You are quirky to somebody. You're an odd bird to somebody. Like, we're all quirky. We all have to put up with things that aren't necessarily sin, but we have to just put up with these things every, like, regularly. Like, look, every Monday morning, I come into our staff meeting every Monday morning, and I have to put up with a bunch of coffee addicts. You making the coffee? You making the coffee? Who's making the coffee? Coffee mate? I mean, it's just like a bunch of addicts looking for their fix. They think I'm weird because I have this weird thing about showing up to places on time and being early, as you guys know. And I have this obsession with uh, blackberry bubbly and grapefruit spindrift. Like, I have my quirks as well. <laughs> you know, people, people sometimes are like, it's, it's weird that you don't like coffee. And I'm like, it's weird that you like having coffee breath. So, you know, <laughs> we all have our quirks. Bearing with one another is saying, I'm not going to let the quirks and the annoyances drive wedge in relationship. Like that the power of the gospel, the power and the glory of Christ are greater than any sin, any difference, any quirk. And I can be unified. I can be in relationship with other people. That's where the power of the gospel is put on display. So where do you need to grow in bearing with one another? Where do you need to grow in putting up with those who are different, who may frustrate, who may be annoying, who may be quirky, Where do you need to learn to put up with them in order to show the unity that we have in Christ? Here's the the, the last component of this that I think is very important for us to grab. That bearing with one another means that we're patient with people in process. That we recognize that this growth in godliness is going to be something that happens through our entire life and we're patient with the process and here's how we're able to be patient. We take hold of the truth that for each of us who are in Christ, we're God's workmanship. Like that person that you know, that you've been walking with, that is growing painfully slow, do you know they're God's workmanship? Do you believe they're God's workmanship? And look, God is at work far slower than you and I would operate because he's working at a far deeper level than you and I would ever go. Like we want things quick and fast because we want them superficial. Just sort of do the cosmetic change. God is going for the deeper transformation. That takes time. That takes a lifetime. Friends, anything worth doing takes time. Masterpieces take time. Like it took 200 years to build the cathedral in Notre Dame. Michelangelo worked on the Sistine Chapel for five years. Depending on what art historian you talk to, the Mona Lisa took anywhere from five to 12 years for da Vinci to paint. Like masterpieces take time. And the masterpiece that God is making us, making us like Jesus, that takes time. Can you be patient with the process? Can you trust God in the process? Bearing with one another in their growth. What would it do, church? What would it do if we bear with one another, actively being patient? How would it put the glory of God on display in this city, what would it do to our community? And so let me say this in conclusion. Like church, I know our culture feels like it's tearing itself apart. Uh, like, like things that, that, that it seems like things are getting darker and darker. Depending on your social media feed, maybe you're just like worried that the world is just gonna explode any moment. Look, I'm not, I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to know how things are going to go. But here are two things that I can tell you. One, Jesus is king. 
Jesus is the sovereign king over all things. He is sovereign all over all the conflict, all of the evil, everything that is going on in our world. He is sovereign over that. He is not off his throne. And so we can trust our King Jesus, submit to him and live under his good kingship, trusting him. But two, here's the other piece. The darkness in our culture, the darkness of the division and the conflict is an opportunity to shine the light of the gospel all the more brightly. Like what a contrast when, when people see in the world nothing but division and hatred and being beat up, a community full of patience and humility and love and grace and gentleness. Like people are gonna come to us beat up by the world, worn out and weary, and what are they gonna find but the love and the grace of God here in this community? That they would experience humility, like people who are humble with them and gentle with them and patient with them. Like that's gonna be attractive to our world. We are gonna have opportunity to step into the brokenness and the ashes that are left by our culture and shine the light of the gospel. And so there's opportunity here, church, opportunity for us. And so let us, church, in our unity, through humility, through gentleness with one another, through patience, declare the glory of Christ and the power of the gospel. Let's pray.